What's up, everybody? I've been practicing all week, all right. Today, I'm beginning a new sermon series. I'm beginning a new sermon series today called The End Times. The study of the last things is called eschatology. Everybody say eschatology. eschatology. It comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last. So it's the study of last things, eschatology. And why is eschatology important? Well, three reasons, three simple practical reasons. One, it affects our hope, especially when times get tough. When times get tough, you need hope. And your view of the end times will affect whether you have hope or not. Second, it answers the question of how should the church engage the world? People with certain views of the end times believe that the church, they have, there is no obligation to engage the world other than uh, evangelism. You got to get as many people saved as possible because the whole world is going to hell. And so... If, your end times view is going to affect whether you as a Christian, you're going to engage the world or not. Social action, those types of issues, some churches believe are useless. And so, you know, in America, there's a historic reason why there's a great divide between Democrats and Republicans. There are Christians who will prefer to be Democrat because they despise certain things about Republicans. And one of the things that they despise is a lot of times Republicans have a bad reputation for not engaging in social action. You know, they don't, they don't give so, you know, they give, they're more capitalists. They, you know, they, anyway, all right, I'm going to not get political. All right. Second, it answers the question of how the church should engage the world. And third, it affects how we ready ourselves for the return of Christ. So eschatology is very important. In fact, poor eschatology has mothered a multitude of pseudo-Christian cults. Now, pseudo-Christian. Pseudo means false. Christian-like cults. Poor eschatology has been the mother of multitudes of pseudo-Christian cults. In fact, here in Korea, there's just so many. I don't even know if they are able to write a book or a reference book or a website about it. There's so many... Uh, Christian cults here in Korea. And a lot of times the place in which they go astray is in their eschatology. Or what attracts people to that cult is the eschatology. Now, a good resource, I'm going to mention two books. For This is a note-taking sermon. But uh, you know what? No, no, no. This Next week is the note-taking sermon. So this one, just listen you're going to get barraged by a bunch of names, okay? But I think it's important for you to just kind of ride with me on today's message. Just ride with me. Even if you're not familiar with all the names, just take it all in and get the overall effect of what I'm trying to give you, okay? Uh, let me give you a couple of good resources, though, on, on cults. One is called Encyclopedia of Cults and New Religions by John Ankerberg and John Weldon. There's a famous book called Kingdom, Kingdom of Cults by Walter Malt- Martin and Ravi Zacharias. Um, now, Ravi Zacharias did not write the book. He just revised it. But Walter Martin is the big name in the Christian counter-cult movement. Now, there are a lot of, not a lot, but there's a few online sites about cults. Now, let me give you a little grain of salt here. Be careful with online websites about cults. Okay, so there's some famous ones. There's CARM, Christian Apologetics Research Institute. Uh, Matt Slick, this guy, he runs that website. And there's another one that's a famous one that Walter Martin started called CRI, Christian Research Institute. And it has, that has since been taken over by a guy named Hank Hanegraaff. In America, he is known on Christian radio as the Bible Answer Man. Okay. Uh, these are two commonly used sites. Although they contribute valuable research, I want to encourage you to be discerning. 
When you go through these websites, eat the meat and throw out the bones. Because the nature of the Christian counter-cult movement can degrade quickly into a witch hunt. So you like a particular Christian author. Right? And then you go onto these cult websites and all of a sudden, the names appear on there with their picture. And the website authors are just completely bashing them and taking them apart, analyzing them, and telling them, telling you that they're a false teacher. Right? You got to be careful. The writers, sometimes they carry a strong religious spirit. Sometimes they take things out of context. Sometimes they're harsh in their analysis of good Christian leaders. People who write about these matters with little to no accountability, little to no pastoral experience, little to no relational engagement with the rest of the body of Christ are not the most discerning people in the body of Christ. So praise God for their research because somebody got to do it, right? But eat the meat and throw out the bones. And if they're not your pastor, you don't even have a relational connection with them. Why would you trust everything they have to say? What if tomorrow you go on CRI and let's say, let's say 10 years from now, let's say New Philly blows up and we're like, you know, tens of thousands, you know, of of hundreds of churches across Asia. And we're just like this really big movement. All right. Let's just say for fun, for fun. Let's just imagine. (laughs) And 10 years from now, you know, pastors Christian Aaron Lee with our picture, like a really bad picture of us too. We appear on like one of these uh, cult sites, you know, and then they start taking apart like our sermons and taking things out of context, like taking things that I said a Sunday swim as a joke or as a side note or something. And then saying, oh, this person believes this. This is a false heresy, all this stuff. But you've never met any of the writers of the website. Why would you just wholeheartedly believe what they have to say? You know, but you know what? A lot of people in the body of Christ do that. Usually it's because they don't have covering, period. They don't have a spiritual authority that they trust and they look up to and they submit to. They don't have anybody like that. So they just, they just get tossed like a wave in the sea. Whoever sounds smart, next person that sounds smart, they're convinced of that view. Next person that sounds strong, they're convinced of that view. You know, there are a lot of, I will not name names right now. Hallelujah, I will not name names. There are a lot of zealous young Christian speakers, popular speakers right now. You got to be very careful. All right, be very careful about what they teach and what they say. Be discerning. Search the scriptures. Verify whether those things that they are saying are biblical, balanced, or not. Uh, And the word cult should be distinguished from the word occult, O-C-C-U-L-T. You should know the difference. Here at New Philly, all our leaders should know the difference. Cult is a lot of these types of uh, different sectarian groups that have a lot of controlling, um, like a controlling spirit. They control their members and they control their uh, finances and they control like all kinds of things. They're very controlling and they have a lot of false beliefs. Occult, O-C-C-U-L-T, it simply means... Uh, anything that has to do with seeking knowledge or power from a source other than God. So when you see a psychic, you're seeking knowledge from a source other than God. When you get the tarot cards read or your palm read, all those things the Bible explicitly says are forbidden. And they fall under occultic sins. If you want to practice sorcery or witchcraft and you think Harry Potter is cute. And let me try some of this you know, witchcraft spells on this cute guy that I like at church. You know, let me just do it for fun just to see if it works. Right? You cast spells or something like that. That's seeking power from a source other than God. And you know what? Certain Christians in Haiti, they get mixed up, syncretistic with all kinds of voodoo all the time. African believers in the continent of Africa, all the different countries where there's a lot of uh, black witchcraft, they also mix up. In Asia, hey, there are a lot of countries where they practice sorcery, uh, they kill animals and they, they shed blood because it makes the uh, curse or whatever spell stronger. Those are all things that fall under the occult where you seek knowledge or power from a source other than God. Occult or cult, both are bad. All right, keep that in, keep my, keep in mind, but be discerning. 
Now, throughout history, the church has held on to the hope of God's final intervention in the world to put an end to all wickedness, reward all of his faithful ones, and then to make all things new. Specifically, the church has believed in a personal, visible, and sudden return of Jesus Christ in a physical body at the end. All Christians believe this. This is called the second coming. Everybody say second coming. coming. Another word for coming is like advent. First advent is his first coming. Second advent. That's talking about his second coming. All right. Don't don't you don't need an MDiv degree to know this. All right. Just keep in mind some of these definitions. Uh, And now the second coming of Christ is to be distinguished from his first coming 2000 years ago. At his first coming, he was a humble and meek little lamb crucified on the cross. Uh, like a lamb is silent before his shearers. You know, he was silent before his accusers. But at his second coming, the Bible clearly says Jesus will return as a mighty lion in great glory and power to vindicate his people and to execute judgment on the wicked. Now, although the church enjoys great agreement about these basic beliefs, Christians have had strong disagreement over the details leading up to Christ's return or the details, uh, the events immediately following his return. Okay, so there's been a lot of disagreement on this issue. And so there are three hot issues that the church disagrees on. First is the millennium. Everybody say millennium. millennium. Second is the tribulation. tribulation. And third is the relationship of the, and role of the Jews to end time events. Okay, you don't have to say all that. David, I knew somebody would do that. Okay. Today and next Sunday, I'm going to cover the first topic because it's one of the biggest ones. The millennium. So you all ready to dive into some theology? Okay, so today we're going to look at what is the millennium, but it's a historical survey. All right. Next week, it will be what is the millennium, the exegetical analysis. Right, And so today we're going to look at the historical survey. Now in preparing for this series, I've referred to a bunch of systematic theology books. Here's some good ones. Historical Theology by Greg Allison. The Christian Faith by Michael Horton. Theology, of the community of, theology for the Community of God by Stanley Grenz. That's something Pastor Benjamin had recommended to me. Bible Doctrine. Uh, systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Or if you want a shorter version, there's a book called Bible Doctrine. It's like a much shorter condensed version of systematic theology. Okay. Now, this sermon series is not meant to be a comprehensive teaching on eschatology. I'm going to simply present the issues that have been debated within the church as objectively as possible. And then preach for the view that I am most convinced of. Now, I am not the best... I'm a very polemic, argumentative type of personality. So I'm not the best when I'm presenting other people's views. I'm not the best at being objective, but I'm going to try my best here to hide what I really believe and to preach on that later. Okay? All right. So let's go. The biggest and most debated issue in regards to eschatology has to do with what is called the millennium. The Bible passage where this belief originates from is Revelation chapter 20. Why don't we all turn there right now? Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. I'm reading the ESV here. And the angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until... The thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. 
Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life. And that Greek word life there is very significant. We'll get into that next week. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So if you circle the word thousand years here, it appears numerous times, right? This is the text where the church has received this concept of the millennium. Now, the word millennium uh, comes from the Latin word mille, which is, just means a thousand. Okay. So here, after a thousand years, Satan is released for a little while. And then if you keep on reading, there's one last battle. And then it c- concludes with Satan being permanently banished into the lake of fire, where he will be tortured day and night forever and ever. These events are then followed by a great white throne judgment where Jesus will judge all and then the new heavens and the earth will descend. Okay? Now, there are three main approaches to this concept of the millennium. Let me go over them right now. Everyone say, premillennialism. Okay? When you spell this, there's two L's and two N's. Okay? Pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, and ah-millennialism. Ah-millennialism. Aha! I'm just playing. I'm not giving you no clues to what to, what I believe. Okay? I'm just playing with you. I'm just playing with you. Okay. Here we go. Pre-millennialists believe that Christ's second return will be prior to the millennium. It will be at the beginning of a literal thousand years. Post-millennialists believe that Christ will return at the end of the thousand years. Amillennialists interpret the reference here to a thousand years as a figurative era between Christ's two advents, between his first and second coming, namely today. They believe that the millennium is talking about the church age. Did everybody catch the three major views just now? If you didn't get that, the rest of my sermon will confuse you. Ah just simply means uh, like it's negated, negated. They don't believe in a literal millennium. Now, premillennialism anticipates, generally they anticipate, an increased moral decay in the condition of the world until Christ returns to establish an earthly reign on the earth, earthly reign for a thousand years. Okay, that's what premillennium says. There's a certain pessimism because they believe that the world is going into moral decay. Postmillennialists expect things to gradually improve through God's blessing and grace on the church's missionary efforts until the nations officially recognize Christ as Messiah and wars and famine and disease, they ceased, and Christ returns to receive this beautiful kingdom on the earth, and then to begin the everlasting state. That's the post-millennial view. Our millennialism expects simultaneous growth and decline, suffering and success, throughout this entire church era, until Christ returns. But there is no literal millennium. We're already li- living in it. It's a figurative one. Now, I want to go into history because history. Now, we need to be gracious in this subject. Now, we want to be strong about what we believe. Well, I'm going to be strong about what I believe, but we got to be gracious in our dialogue. Really, when you when you debate a lot of topics, even when you debate you know, predestination, things like that, you got to be very gracious with other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. 
You know, I don't appreciate people, you know, you know, caricaturing Calvinists as you know, stone cold hearted, you know, fatalistic, you know, you know, books nerdy people, <laughs> theologians that you know are kind of cold and calculating, something like that. That's not. That's not. That's not right. You know, a lot of a lot of well-meaning evangelists, man, they 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 call Calvinists satanic all the time. You know, I really don't appreciate that. I don't do that for the for them. Do I? Do you see me calling them satanic? I disagree. But you know, I'm not going around telling them. So we got to be very. There's got to be a charity and a grace when we dialogue. Now, I think doing this historical survey today is going to help you to be gracious, because there's a lot of different elements that influence our millennial views okay i'm going to start with early jewish views when jesus started his public ministry there was quite a bit of apocalyptic fervor among the jews jews believe that world history will be divided between this age and the age to come and they believe that the age to come will take place not by steady gradual development but by the personal arrival of the messiah Someone of the Davidic line who will usher in a golden age on the earth. This is what the Jews believed. This would involve the reconsecration of geographic Palestine as holy ground. Because this is where Israel, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, they resided. And they, they took possession of that as a promised land. When Joshua came up. Out of the wilderness, right? You guys, you guys with me, right? You got to connect all of your biblical knowledge right now or this ain't going to make no sense. So they believe that the land will be reconsecrated and all Gentile oppressors, namely the Romans, will be driven from the land. And from the city of Jerusalem, the Messiah will extend a geopolitical kingdom, much like David had, to the ends of the earth. And this will culminate in the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment and the arrival of a new heaven and a new earth. This is generally what they believed. There was a broad range of how these details would take place. Pharisees, for example, they saw Herod and the Romans as standing in the way of the golden age. And so they believed that through a renewed devotion to the temple and renewed devotion to the law, that the Messiah will come and liberate Israel. There are other Jewish sects uh, that abandoned the temple altogether. They just saw so much hypocrisy among the Pharisees. They were like, man, forget all this. And they went to the desert. There's a uh, group called the Essenes. And they lived strict ascetic lives. No, you know, little food, no sex. You know, it was just like very ascetic. And they lived in the desert. And they interpreted the current events happening at that time as harbingers of the last days. Interesting, huh? John the Baptist and his disciples were a form of a desert community. And John the Baptist did not conceive of two distinct advents of the Messiah. He just thought that the Messiah would arrive and all at once he would begin to reign and the golden age would start and then the kingdom would start to expand to the ends of the earth and then the final judgment will come. So John the Baptist did not conceive a two advent. So he was a little confused. He's in jail. You know, when he's out of jail, he's like, this is the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. But he's in jail and he sends some of his disciples and says, can you ask Jesus if he's the one or are we to expect somebody else? In other words, you know what John the Baptist was actually asking? He was like, are you going to bail me out of jail or not? If you're the Messiah and you're supposed to take over the kingdom, like a political kingdom, then you need to hurry up because I'm about to die in here. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, tell him that the blind see, the deaf hear, lame walk, better raise, something like that, right? Tell him all these signs are happening. And John the Baptist was probably thinking, what is going on? And he ended up getting beheaded. Jesus didn't come get him. What a bad cousin, right? Come on, cuz. I don't care if you're not the Messiah, but you're my cousin. Get me out of jail. Jesus said, hey, man, the dead are raised. You know, blind are seen. 
Blessed is he who's not offended by me. John the Baptist is like, what you talking about? I'm sure it was a very confusing moment for John the Baptist. So throughout the centuries, Orthodox Jewish beliefs have held to a literal restoration of Israel's theocratic kingdom under the leadership of the Messiah. That's why even for right now, Jews returning to Israel is a very important symbolic act. Because they believe the Messiah is going to come any moment. And is going to establish that geopolitical reign. That theocratic reign like they had back in the days of David. Now the question remains. Were the Jews of Jesus' time completely off in believing for a golden age of messianic rule? Or were they holding on to clues of something that is to come? Now, a lot of Christians will say, well, man, Jews, they don't know nothing, right? They don't know Christ. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't know nothing. They're completely off. Look, man, all the, uh, the, what they were expecting in the Messiah, it came at the cross and they missed it. So there ain't no golden age. These Jews are all off. There's a lot, a lot of Christian rhetoric. Okay. So anyway, that's what the early Jews and most Orthodox Jews today believe. Let me talk about early church views. Theologian Michael Horton tries to argue that the widely held view in the early church was amillennialism. The belief that the millennium is figurative. That the church age is actually the thousand years. And he actually attributes the first widespread belief in a literal thousand years. He attributes it to the Montanists. The Montanists beliefs were later condemned as heresy by the church. So, you know, it's a little convenient for Michael Horton to say it this way. But I did a little bit more research because this is one person's interpretation using a particular reference book. But I I like Greg Allison's book, Historical Theology, because it's a much more comprehensive survey of the early church's beliefs. And if you look at Greg Allison's work, he says that Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus all articulated a belief in premillennialism. And Old Testament prophets were frequently quoted in supporting these beliefs. So Greg Allison, he summarizes... Because nature will be set free from sin and evil, Satan will be bound and unbelievers will be held in check by the ruling Christ. Christians can look forward to an unprecedented golden age of righteousness, peace, and prosperity. This premillennial hope was strong in the early church. So Greg Allison has a completely different view than Michael Horton on, on church's his, church history. Okay, So that's the early church views. So it's debatable what they actually believed. Amillennialists will argue, look, the early church believed in amillennialism. Premillennialists will typically argue, look, the early church believed in premillennialism. All right, you guys get that? All right, let's go to the Middle Ages. No, let's go to 5th century. I'm sorry, before we go to Middle Ages. 5th century is very significant. By the 5th century, premillennialism gave way to amillennialism. Amillennialism became far more popular during this time. Several things contributed to the demise of premillennial views. Okay? First was premillennialism's emphasis on luxurious material blessings that awaited believers in the millennium. So Eusebius, a uh, church uh, historian, thought that this notion was strange. Now you got to understand that at this time there are a lot of these church theologians were influenced by Greek philosophers. A lot of Greek philosophers had a low view on material things. They believed that matter is evil or they had some kind of presupposition that matter is evil. So they looked down on people that, you know, loved luxury and materialism. And we ought to look down on materialism, but they, they had that kind of view. And so they really thought that this luxurious material blessing for the millennium, they thought it was strange. Second reason was the change in the relationship between the church and the state. Because Constantine, by this time, made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. So that changes a lot of things. Third reason why premillennialism began to demise was because of feeble attempts to predict the timing of Christ's return and the beginning of the new millennium. So a lot of people, I guess, they try to predict the time. 
and the church was getting a little bit agitated by that. Sound familiar? You guys know that in the 80s, there are so many Korean churches that try to predict, Korean church leaders that try to predict the end of the world. You know what? It was, it was in America too. The Americans weren't excused from this. And in fact, a couple of years ago, a famous Christian radio host, he also did a whole new wave of predictions for the end of the world. Anyway, back then, in the 5th century, they started getting tired with that as well. So, one example is the Montanists. The Montanists predicted that the descent of the New Jerusalem will be to Phrygia, which happens to be the hometown of the movement. How convenient, right? That's like me saying, you know, the New Jerusalem is going to descend to Tegu, because that's where I was born. Yeah, and so you know, people are like, man, get out of here, y'all. So these things soured Christians from premillennialism. Origen, church theologian, he criticized premillennialism for a literal interpretation of the Bible. And he tended to instead to spiritualize it. And finally, Augustine eventually made amillennialism very popular by arguing for it. In fact, initially he was attracted to premillennial views, but he thought that the emphasis on luxury and prosperity in the thousand years, he thought it was scandalous. So Augustine said, man, I can't believe in this stuff. And so he was influenced by a guy named Tyconius. And Tyconius linked the, uh, and Tyconius through his influence, Augustine linked the binding of Satan described here in Revelation chapter 20, to Jesus' word about binding the strong man in Mark 3.27. So Augustine was like, yeah, you know, this is what it's, what it's talking about. So since Christianity was the state religion of that time, Augustine believed that the thousand years have begun already at Christ's first coming, and it shall end at his second coming. To him, the millennium of revelation describes simply the church age. So he nullified any belief in a future golden age. And through his influence, amillennialism became the dominant eschatological belief for the next thousand years. No pun intended. Now, uh, in amillennialism, there were some um, dangerous offshoots, kind of because of uh, the state religion being Christianity. One was uh, called triumphant amillennialism. And so in this view, if I had to sum it up, it pretty much, people believe that uh, the Roman emperor was Christ's earthly representative and that Christ was reigning in this thousand years now through the Roman emperor. You know, and so the Roman emperor had the liberty to use military force to ex- extend this kingdom and stuff like that. You know, so, you know, and, and you know, it's involved with uh, luxury as well and, and materialism. Later on, the Catholic pope claimed supremacy over the whole church and eventually you know, they, over the whole world. Because the Holy Roman Empire and, and Christendom, you guys know the history behind it. Pope had a lot of power. So that's the 5th century. Let's go to the Middle Ages. During the medieval period, amillennialism began to be challenged because of the great expansion of Islam. Christians were appalled that Jerusalem was taken over by the Muslims. This holy city. This historic holy city was now taken over. So the Catholic Church organized what we know as the Crusades as a military response to Islamic expansion. If Islam represents the Antichrist, it had to be challenged literally, violently, militarily in order to usher in Christ's return. So that influenced you know, they started to maybe go away from our millennialism because things didn't look so optimistic anymore. Well, I mean, yeah, anyway. Actually, our millennialism is not connected to optimism, but it is and it isn't. It's connected to kind of realism. So our millennialists are more realist. Premillennials have more pessimism. And then uh, postmillennials have that optimism. But that doesn't mean that just because you're an optimist, you should believe in postmillennialism, okay? I'm just saying that's the kind of color that each of these end-time views tends to have. Another uh, thing that influenced was bubonic plague. People die! 
All those things were going great in the Holy Roman Empire, and then you know later on in the Middle Middle Ages, all these people dying. Like if eighty percent of New Philly people die next week, man, you you start to think. You start to think about the end times. So that also influenced eschatology. Now in the Middle Ages, there's a guy named Jehoiakim of Fiore. I think this is a French name. I don't know if it's a French name. Anyway, I think it's biblical. I'm sorry. Joachim of Fiore. Okay? He's a 12th century monk. And his views had a long-term effect that still goes on to today. His views are kind of crazy. But his influence has a long-term effect. This guy believed that history was divided into three ages. The age of the father, which is the age of the law, the era of the law. The age of the son, which is the era of grace. And the age of the spirit, which he predicted will begin in 1260 and will bring an end to the church and the necessity of all external aids, such as sacraments and preaching. He said that everyone in the spirit, in the um, age of the spirit, he said that everyone would know God directly and immediately. And that in this last age, there will be a spiritual unity of the human race that's unprecedented. So Yao Kim's views are closest to what we would call post-millennial. Okay? It's not post-millennialism, but it's one of the first and earliest kind of uh, versions of it. Okay? But anyway, this guy really influences post-millennialism later, so you, gotta, you guys got to keep that in mind. Now let's go from the Middle Ages to the Reformation. The reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin. Come on now. They know what they're talking about, right? Come on. So despite challenging the many doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant reformers did not oppose amillennial eschatology. Whatever, what Augustine you know, championed, they did not oppose. Martin Luther did adapt it a little bit by calling the Pope the Antichrist. But Luther and John Calvin both denied a belief in a future golden age. And they may have opposed it even more because of their concerns with the Anabaptists. Let me talk about the Anabaptist views of premillennialism a little bit. Now, John Newfeld here, his family is a, uh, of the Mennonite tradition. Mennonites are a version, uh, a sect of the Anabaptists. Okay? Let me talk about the Anabaptists here. Most Anabaptists were peaceful. They were actually pacifists, so they refused to bear arms. But several radical incidents took place that gave the Anabaptist movement a reputation for violent millennialism, for violent millennialism, which means just a belief in a literal uh, thousand years. Okay, anyway, I'm, I'm, don't, don't worry about that. Anyway, so there's two incidents. I'm going to mention two incidents. I'm giving about 10 more minutes. There was a guy named Thomas Munzer. He stirred up the Peasants' War in Germany in 1525. And he linked his hope in a future golden age to a violent war that will usher in the millennium. So he said, everybody, come on, let's usher in the return of Christ. The millennium is about to begin, but you got to take up arms. He was militarily crushed. In 1534, another Anabaptist rebellion started. It's called the Munster Rebellion. And it had traditionally pacifist Anabaptists taking up arms again. In an apocalyptic expectation of the new Jerusalem that will once again descend on the city, the German city of Munster. I wonder if that's where Munster cheese comes from. But anyway, I'm sorry. That has nothing to do with anything. So through fiery sermons and prophetic visions... The city of Munster was forcefully taken. And then John of Leyden, one of the leaders, proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. Uh Uh-oh. And then he instituted polygamy. So they also had a premillennial view. And uh, a Catholic Protestant army. Hey. Something brought the Catholics and Protestants together back then. (laughs) 
they were composed and they went in and they crushed the rebellion. So Martin, uh, I believe uh, some of the reformers, they had uh, key decisions in crushing this rebellion violently. Anyway, all of these incidents seem to have tainted premillennialism and caused Calvin and the reformers to frown upon it. That's during the Reformation period, okay? Now let's come to the modern period. When I mean modern, I'm talking maybe like 17th century, 18th century. Okay, let's come to the modern period. Premillennialism received a new surge of support in the modern period, especially with the destruction of the Catholic Church via the French Revolution. Also in the modern period, a third eschatological view arose to compete with amillennialism and premillennialism. A guy named Daniel Whitby and another guy named Jonathan Edwards developed post-millennialism. Interesting, huh? You guys, you guys know John Piper? John Piper's big hero is Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards is, was an amazing man. He was uh, the first dean of Princeton University when Princeton used to be, used to be Christian. But it was a strong theological seminar. You know. Anyway, um, they developed post-millennialism. And they believe that Christ will return to judge the world at the end of the millennium. So earlier Puritans had subscribed to a very similar view. So this is very popular in the Puritan movement. They believe that the kingdom of God will come in power. People everywhere will convert to Christ. Governments worldwide will support the church and that Christianity will be characterized in the last days by purity and faith and practice. After this prosperity, Christ will return. This optimistic view became very unpopular in England when England started having all these wars and political turmoil. But it found fertile ground in colonial America, the New England because of new hope, new, you know, this wonderful new society that we're starting from scratch using biblical principles, right? There's a lot of optimism at the time, so this view was very embraced. Jonathan Edwards. I'm going to read a quote by uh, Greg Allison. The Protestant Reformation has set in motion numerous elements that will ultimately lead to the demise of the papacy, the, the Pope, identified as the Antichrist. This development, together with the spread of the gospel through the Holy Spirit, will usher in the millennium. Indeed, the outpouring of revival during the Great Awakening of the 1740s was a harbinger of the approaching millennium. Now, you got to remember, during the Great Awakening, there was mass conversions. So it looked like what they were saying was happening. I mean, you talk about whole cities of drunkards coming to Christ. The Great Awakening. During this golden age of unprecedented peace and prosperity, the gospel will convert all people throughout the world. And at the end of this period, now characterized by sin and evil due to the abuse of millennial prosperity. I guess there will be an abuse of this prosperity later. After this abuse, Christ will return to judge the world and destroy it. So post-millennialism was encouraged in America by the defeat of the British in the Revolutionary War. So when they defeated the British armies, it looked like like American Christians were well on their way to ushering in the millennium. Well on their way to gradually expanding the gospels and the kingdom's influence all over the world. And in the 19th century, it gained even more momentum because there was a second great awakening. Do you guys know there was a second one? There's a guy named Charles Finney. He also subscribed to postmillennialism. And D.L. Moody, he didn't really articulate it, but he didn't oppose it. So it led to Christians championing, this is very positive, it led to Christians championing a lot of various social reforms because they believed that the world would get gradually better. Uh, like the abolition of slavery, the prohibition of alcohol, the mo- movement to give women the right to vote, giving them education. All of that was a result of post-millennial influences. Interesting, huh? Despite strong support, people soon became disillusioned with post-millennialism because of the American Civil War. 
Here you had a country that was supposed to be on its way to this millennial golden age, gradually through the evangelization of the country, and now they're killing each other. Dead bodies, fathers, uncles, they're all dead. And so they really um, brought a disillusionment with this optimistic view. Also, industrialization, urbanization, and the failures of social reform efforts made all these people get disillusioned with post-millennialism. In the 19th century, historic premillennialism, now premillennialism started to pick up steam again in the 19th century after, you know, civil war and all that stuff. Historic premillennialism was now challenged by a new form of premillennialism. There was a guy named John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren. Anybody know the Plymouth Brethren? Okay. John Nelson Darby, he is what is known as the father of dispensationalism. Everybody say dispensationalism. dispensationalism. It just comes from the word dispensation. Okay. And so dispensational premillennialism began to be spread all over America because of John Nelson Darby. And different people who subscribe to dispensationalism after that. Uh, so today, uh, a seminary that has a dispensational history is Talbot out in California. Very respected seminary. And a really popular one is Dallas Theological Seminary down in Texas. Okay, they're very, two very, one of the, some of the best seminaries in the country, but they have a dispensational history. Okay? Now, Dispensationalists believed very particular things. One, they have a very literal interpretation of the Bible. So they have, they push this very literal interpretation method. Okay. And, and they believe that certain Old Testament prophecies applied only to the Jews. And so they tend to dichotomize. They tend to separate the hope that the Jews have from the hope that the church has. And they believe that history right now is in a parenthetical time. That the promises to Israel, promises to the Jews were put on hold. And we have hit the church age. But when the millennium starts, all those promises for the Jews will start to get fulfilled again. You guys hear what I'm saying? And so in that sense, Jerusalem as a political geographic location is very important. And so... um, so some, let me sum up the dispensational premillennial view. Left Behind. How many guys have read the book Left Behind by Tim LaHaye? Left Behind? Yeah, some of y'all? Okay. During the 70s, there was another book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Anyone read that one? Anyway, that, that's like a precursor to the Left Behind fiction series. Anyway, um, pretty much dispensationalists say that before the millennium begins, there's going to be a rapture. It's going to be a secret rapture. And so one day, so if you watch the movie Left Behind with Kirk Cameron, you guys, you guys watch the movie. Or maybe you didn't read the book, but you watch the movie. You know, and, and the 80s, they had these really cheap movies about like the thief in the night, try to scare people into Christianity. You know, you, know, you never know when Jesus is going to return. So you better believe in him today, you know. Um, And so dispensationists believe that before the millennium begins, there's going to be a rapture, a secret rapture of the church. So all Christians are going to be taken out of the earth. And then there's going to be a time of tribulation. And then the millennium will begin. And then, so Christ will return at the beginning of that millennium. And then you have the thousand years. And then the end of all things, you know, judgment and new Jerusalem, new earth. Okay. Now, um, the thing with this is, I will come out forthright and say, I do not believe in dispensationalism. Dispensational premillennialism, personally, I believe, is an invention of the 19th century. You don't see it supported or argued for in the historic church. But you know what? Most of American Christians, especially in the Bible Belt, I want to say especially in the Bible Belt, And especially in California, especially in locations where they have not seen much hardship, right? Dispensational premillennialism is very popular. 
The idea of a rapture where we are spared this seven-year period of tribulation, very popular. And so without really studying the Bible, a lot of Christians have been indoctrinated with dispensationalism. Now, there's a reason for this. There's this uh, study Bible called the Schofield Bible. At the early 20th century, they became very popular, sold many, many copies. You may even have one at home. But that author, has a pre, uh, he has a dispensational bent. And so a lot of the Bible study that he does in the footnotes is all dispensationalism. Okay? Now, um, so let me break it apart for you, okay? There is classic premillennialism. That's what I think the early church believed. Um, second, there is amillennialism. That's what Augustine popularized. There is postmillennialism, which, which through the infant influence of Joachim of Fiore and then the uh, Jonathan Edwards and all these other popular guys, it became very popular at some point and still is to a certain degree. And then lastly, there is classical dispensational premillennialism. Now, there's a fifth one called progressive dispensational premillennialism. Don't worry about that. There's not enough writing out there for people to try to defend it like, oh, you know, you know this is the latest and greatest, you know, best, this is the best revised version of millennial views. Okay? I'm not convinced. Anyway, but there are, there are smart people that subscribe to that. Okay? Now, let me just name out, let me just drop names just to, just to show you how divided the church is in this issue. Classic premillennialists, George Eldon Ladd, these are some current authors. Craig Blomberg, it's a very famous author. Wayne Grudem, John Piper, Mike Bickle, these are some guys that are classic premillennialists. Um, classic dispensational premillennialists, Charles Ryrie, um, you know, John Nelson Darby, Schofield Bible, all those guys. Postmillennialism, Keith Matheson, John Jefferson Davis. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney, some of these very famous guys. And then ancient amillennialism, Augustine, Luther, Calvin. How can you argue with that, right? These are some of the smartest guys in church history. Okay. So what am I trying to say? I'm going to close this message today without telling you where I stand. I hope I didn't, did I give away anything? Okay, and for some of the leaders, you guys already know where I stand, but, you know, just keep it, keep it hush-hush for now. Okay. The, the effect of this message is simply to communicate to you, all right, that there is a lot of mystery attached with um, the end times, isn't there? And it, rightly so. Rightly so. And I believe that Christ will reveal more and more revelation, not new revelation, but just the clear clarity about the end times as we approach the end times. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe we're living in the end times. And ever since North Korea has been threatening us, I feel like we're even closer to the end times. <laughs> you know, anytime there's a threat of war, everybody feels like, oh, it's end times. But Jesus himself said there will be wars and rumors of wars. But the gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all nations, and then the end will come, right? And so... All I want you to conclude today is there's a lot of smart people on each side of the debate. What I want you to walk away from this is the question of, is there a future golden age? Think about that. Most of you in here, you probably never even thought about that. That the Bible, if you interpret it literally with the millennium, you're talking about a thousand years. That means you're not going to die during those thousand years. Now, you might think, well, that sounds crazy. People die at 120 years old. No, not, not in the book of Genesis. You ever read the book of Genesis? People lived to 985, and then he died. That's a lot of children he had. That's a lot of experience. Now, now Genesis, like, you know, like life experience. Guys are, you guys need to be sanctified. What's wrong with you? But the problem, one problem with having the children of man live to a thousand years, one problem was not only did they gain a lot of life experience, but they also increased in wickedness. They increased in so much wickedness that God said, 
I'm going to bring a flood and I'm going to bring an end to all this. And that's around the time that God also says, I'm not going to strive with man anymore. I'm going to limit his years to 120. And from that point on, people slowly started to die earlier. And from, from 900 to 500, 500 to 300, 300 to 120. But in the millennium, you get to live through the whole thing. Ain't that crazy? Like, you know, let's say there's some, you're, you're driving. Like, it's not like we're going to lose cars and airplanes. What if, you know, like some guy at the, uh, some pilot, he falls asleep and you, you crash. You don't die. Isn't that weird? Can you think about that? Like, you get shot. And you come back to life. Because it's the millennium. You still eat. The world is, the earth is still as it is. You can go to Aruba. You can go to Phuket. You can go to Bali. You can go to the Maldives. Wherever you wanted to go during this thousand years, you go travel the world. People will probably still have private property during that time. Does it boggle your Am I the only one that gets boggled thinking about this concept? So that's why some of the early church historians, they were like, this is strange. We got to spiritualize this. This can't be literal. They just had a hard time believing it. So is there a future golden age? Were the Jews onto something? Or was Jesus just rebuking them? You know, in Acts chapter 1, right? Jesus is, uh, he's resurrected. He stayed with them for many days. And now he's about to ascend. And Jesus says, hey, check it out. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. For in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know? You would think the disciples would go, wow, that sounds great. I can't wait. No, they respond with, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They changed the topic on Jesus. And Jesus said, oh, you want to change the topic? I'm going to change the topic back. <laughs> he said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has set. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What, so, there's an interesting there. Jesus doesn't say, you knuckleheads, don't you know? That there is no golden age? Don't you know there is no future messianic geopolitical reign? You knuckleheads, just, just go out and evangelize. He doesn't say that. But his absence doesn't mean he affirms it or denies it. So that's the problem here. We don't, we don't know. We don't know. So, so the reason why I covered the early Jewish view as well was to give you an idea that Jews derived their beliefs from the Bible, from the Old Testament. They got it from somewhere. And so there was this pre-existing uh, view of a golden age. Okay? So next week, we are going to go into the exegetical analysis of the three viewpoints. I'm going to objectively present it. And then at the end, I am going to fiery co- convince you of my viewpoint. <laughs> oh, what I believe is, uh, is a sound interpretation. Okay? And actually, I, I, think it's quite, I think it's quite easy. But anyway... I got Michael Horton to, to argue against. He's a pretty smart guy. Uh, let me close in prayer. Actually, it's somebody uh, that you probably really respect. Post-millennialists are um, guys in the charismatic movement. A lot of leaders in the charismatic movement are post-millennialists. So I want to say Bill Johnson, Bethel, they are post-millennialists because they generally have a view, optimistic one, that as we evangelize through the power of the Holy Spirit, that things on earth are going to get better. So you know what? There's a lot of debate out there. And we need to be gracious in it. All right. I'm, I'm just closing prayer. Father, I just thank you, Lord, that we have our great hope in you. That indeed you will send your son who will return on the clouds of glory to usher in an everlasting kingdom. A kingdom that will know no end. And Father, we just pray that you will lead us by your truth. Lead us by your spirit into all truth. And even as we search the scriptures next week, I pray that Father Lord, you would speak to us. And cause our thinking to be uh, sharp and critical so that we can really 
understand what the scriptures have said regarding the millennium, regarding the end times. Father, we just thank you. We bless you. We bless you for all of the wonderful church leaders that have gone before us. Whether we agree with them or not, we honor them, God. We honor Martin Luther. We honor John Calvin. We honor um, Tertullian and all these early guys, just martyr. We even honor people we disagree with, like John Nelson the Darby. We just we, we, we honor them because, Lord, you have used them to expand the gospel to the ends of the earth. The world is hearing about Jesus because of these guys. And so, Father, we, uh, we thank you for them. And we do pray, though, that you will lead us into a sound interpretation of the end times. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.